Welcome to the Age of Autonomy podcast. My name is Albert Perez, your host for this show. Throughout this podcast, we will be diving in-depth into subjects discussed in the book, Crypto Asset Investing in the Age of Autonomy. You'll be able to learn from the author himself, Jake Ryan, as well as the CEO of Tradecraft Capital, James Diorio. Crypto assets for years have ebbed and flowed in news cycles, but as of late, they have caught worldwide attention. This podcast is for those looking to understand blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, and the role it is set to play in the world that we know. Each episode reflects a step in the journey of understanding crypto asset investing, so let's hop right into this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Age of Autonomy podcast. Um, it's Albert, and I'm your host for today's show. Um, last episode, we talked about the Fed. We talked about briefly went over inflation. In this episode, we're really going to dive into economic cycles and what that means to you. I think this is going to be an a important episode to really listen to. It's also a really important chapter for me when I was reading it, just because if you're an investor, you have to know the economic cycle that you're in, that you're buying into, that you're selling into. I think that's very, very important. And that's what we're going to dive into today. So again, I have uh, with me the CIO of Tradecraft Capital and author of Crypto Asset Investing in the Age of Autonomy, Jake Ryan, and serial entrepreneur, uh, and CEO of Tradecraft Capital, James Yorio. How are y'all doing today? Doing well. Doing good. Thanks. Okay. Doing great, Albert. Awesome. Let's uh, let's jump into this thing. Um, so I really want to briefly kind of go into the different economic cycles and starting with productivity growth being the first one. Can you kind of dive into that briefly, explain to the audience just exactly what that looks like? Yeah. So um, when you think about an economy, Right. And an economy can have the, the boom and the bust. Right. And it kind of as it goes, boom and bust, hopefully in a, you know, kind of diagonal line up over time so that we're improving the size of the economy over time. The two main components that uh, really drive growth are uh, productivity and credit. So, you know, uh, productivity is is the output of, of all the. Uh, uh, employees or all of the labor, and that includes their efficiency, uh, them getting more efficient. And the credit side is, you know, loans available or, or credit available. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can think if, if you borrow money as a, an entrepreneur and you take a, a loan and, and you're able to then buy uh, equipment that then helps you produce more uh, produce more widgets or, or more output, then, you know, that's how credit is um, helping with the cycle. It's with spending. So it's not with the growth that you do as an entrepreneur, but it's with the spending part. And so productivity, growth, and spending really are the prime factors that drive uh, economic growth. Oh, you know, from, sorry, from an everyman standpoint, if you want to think about how, how, how this works, if you're working and you make more money and you're doing a great job, You've got an ability to, you, you've got more to put into the marketplace. You've got more to spend. You've got more to do. If you're not, you can always tap into debt. You can use your credit card. You can still spend, but ultimately the consequences of those two things, either earning more through productivity or going to the well and kind of drawing, there's going to be, you know, impact of each of those different events. Good point. You got to pay that credit card back where you don't have to pay back just doing better. Exactly. Exactly. And eventually the bill always comes due. Yeah. 
So I, I kind of want to get into the, the next economic cycle being the short-term debt cycle. How does productivity growth kind of transition into this next economic cycle? Well, uh, they're not different cycles, but yeah, I mean, there's really kind of a short-term cycle and a long-term cycle. Uh, you can think about the short-term cycle typically being, you know, five to 10 years, something like that. A lot of times what you'll, you know, how it'll operate is, you know, it'll be at the base where, you know, we're just starting to start increasing, you know, uh, the, the economy. Uh, rates are really low. Um, people are then borrowing more and starting to then uh, have more labor, you know, we'll, we'll start to hire more people and then they start to uh, sell more widgets or, or what have you into the marketplace. And so that goes on for a while and suddenly we start to see inflation creep up, right? Uh, the inflation is creeping up because there now finally is a constraint on supply and more and more people need supply. They need whatever it is, whether it's lumber or oil or labor, right? And that competition for those resources then drive up those prices, right? And that's what we see in inflation, in, in price inflation anyway, uh, distinct from, from monetary inflation. And so uh, as that uh, inflation increases, um, what central banks typically do to, uh, to fight or fend off inflation is to raise interest rates, right? And so they start to raise interest rates higher than, you know, uh, than the inflation rate or the expected inflation rate. That starts to curb growth, right? Because uh, businesses and people out there are now seeing that it's more expensive to borrow. Right, and that ultimately changes uh, changes the calculus. You know, they have to factor in okay with these greater expenses for the for the cost of money. You know, for borrowing, are we still you know making profits? Or does it still work? And so um, that'll come a point where uh, they raise rates enough that it starts to uh, uh, stop or curb uh, curb inflation, and and at some point there's going to be a recession. Right, the, the calculus no longer works. There was uh, enough uh, bad capital outlay that didn't pan out. Uh, people or businesses are indebted and they can't pay it back. So there's going to be some sort of restructuring. Um, but, and then, you know, we have some sort of economic decline. Uh, rates go down close to zero, and then we start the cycle again. So that's kind of the short-term cycle, and it's really managed by, by debt or by credit, you know, within within the economy. So that gives you kind of the five to ten-year look, and and that's why we've seen, you know, we had something like oh, in the '90s we had a recession, maybe '91, something like that. Uh, real estate became really depressed. Uh, then we had this big boom with the internet and uh, interstep, internet stocks went, went crazy and um, and we sort of malinvestment, right? This is a bad investment where uh, people invented uh, invested in a bunch of dot coms that ultimately, you know, didn't pan out. You know, they were trying to measure the value of, of some stocks by eyeballs and, and page clicks and that didn't work out. And so we had this big bust. Uh, in 99 and 2000. Uh, so we started the cycle over again. And then, you know, 
Fed and other central banks kind of bailed out, dropped the interest rates. Uh, and then we saw it again in 2008 and nine. This, this one was bigger, but we saw the great, the great recession, the great financial crisis of 2008. And so we saw a restructuring then, rates go to zero. <clears throat> they started to do more um, interesting and exotic ways to try to uh, boost the economy back. You know, but you can see it was kind of every 10 years or so. So that's the short wave cycle. It seems to me that the, the, the short term debt cycle in a way uh, kind of seems like there's a lot of economic prosperity that kind of goes on when productivity is really high, which then leads to credit being really high. And then that's how we're starting to form these bubbles. Um, I'm trying to kind of understand and let's kind of shift gears a little bit more to the long term debt cycle. How what what is the what is the difference between short term, long term? How is it that the 08 crash, if it is categorized within um, being, you know, a short term debt cycle, maybe a little bit of a bubble, um, then how can we categorize something like a long term debt cycle? OK, well, the long term debt cycle is it can be more about uh, um, what's happening with money, right? And uh, we may see something like, you know, interest rates go to zero or near zero. I think it was in maybe the late 30s, right? And then we had this big increase and uh, a big blow off. And then it wasn't until maybe 2000 or something where we had <clears throat> rates go back down to zero again. And so that one's more kind of the, the long uh, the long-term debt cycle. It has to do with, with money and um, expansion. And then, you know, ultimately it can end with sovereign currencies or, or reserve currencies losing their status. Uh, that, that is even a bigger uh, cycle. You know, that probably takes a couple of long wave uh, debt cycles for that to happen. Uh, but, but that's the, the long-term debt cycle. So, Gotcha. And, and so um, just kind of diving into what you said in the in the chapter, you kind of uh, mentioned how within the long term debt cycle, eventually debts are starting to rise so fast that they are um, basically rising faster than income rates as well. Um, can you kind of dive into that process a little bit on how that happens? Yeah, this, this is more at kind of government or sovereign level, right? It's not more at individual economic level. So, uh, you know, just like people, governments can get over their skis with how much they uh, borrow or how much you know they create in, in lending. And, and they can get to a point where it doesn't look like they're able to, to pay back you know, all, those, uh, all those loans. Now those loans are in the form of sovereign bonds uh, and it can take a, a long time for this to happen. Most countries uh, that aren't able to manage their own uh, their own currency, they're not able to inflate away uh, their currency or, or or like that, will have to default. Countries that uh, that are able to, and and that can be like um, the entire European Union. I think there were 16 countries or something like that that gave up the, their own rights to manage their own currency. Um, so you'll see a you know, like Greece, for example, has no ability to uh, inflate away their debt or to manage and devalue their currency because they not, no, no longer have that right. Um, mm. 
someplace like the United States would be able to, to do that. There's no reason for the US to, de you know, to hard default or, or actually default on their, on their uh, obligations because they can uh, just print more and more uh, and, and pay that off. Now that's effectively devaluing their currency, um, but they're able to do that without having a hard default. And so um, that's typically what happens in these long-term debt cycles. You know, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept when you think about it. When you've got, you know, back to our everyman, if you're borrowing against a credit card, at some point they're going to go, "Sorry, you can't borrow anymore. You're done. You have to find a way to get productive again and pay this off, or ultimately default." I think one of the challenges that we've got, well, maybe it's a challenge to toolkit. I still look at a solution, but if you keep printing money, you can keep paying your debt, but you're just kicking that can down the road, down the road, down the road, down the road. Mm. Right, the same controls that we that, that credit card companies use for the individual, we don't have in the government. You just print more money. In theory, they're there, but I don't know that I've seen it actually happen. Yeah, well, it can ha it can happen. Uh, maybe not with the U.S., but uh, that process, you know, that technical process is deleveraging. So I remember hearing it a lot uh, uh, with with Greece when we had um, you know a lot of that um, going down. Whatever, almost a decade ago. Right. Um, you know, and governments have basically one of four alternatives to to managing their high levels of debt. You know, they can <clears throat> they can cut spending. Right. Austerity. If you can remember all those mm -hmm. conversations about Greece and austerity. Um, the thing that sucks about that is, uh, you know, you're going to have to take a haircut on uh, growth. On something. Right. On something you're not going to be able to. <laughs> on something. To grow and it's going to take you know much longer time to be able to fix the problem through austerity but a lot of times that is the only option because you know like the credit card example people don't want to give you any more credit so you're going to have to cut spending um the other way is is debt restructuring right mm -hmm. uh this has happened with many countries before where uh the world bank or some something imf has you know, um, bailed them out for, for a lot of their loans. I think uh, it might've been, I think Argentina, it, it could be like every 20 years or so, they're, they're, they're basically coming back and having to completely restructure their debt. And so um, that'll devalue, you know, greatly devalue, um, devalue their currency. Um, <clears throat> and in examples like that, when you start to see governments uh, uh, putting in capital controls, like uh, you can't buy gold or you can't buy Bitcoin or you cannot move money out of the country or mm. you know, we're creating a, um, a, a price ceiling on how on the uh, on the um, transfer rate or the foreign exchange of our currency that that's a lot you know happening because there is something going on with debt restructuring. Um, you can look to redistribute wealth. So a lot of times uh, at the end of one of these long-term cycles, you'll start hearing, um, you know, the, the wealthy need to pay their fair share or um, we need to tax uh, wealthy, you know, um, their capital, right? Um, mm -hmm. We need to come with new ways to, to tax the wealthy because they're the only ones with, with money. And so we don't want to cut our spending. And so let's see if we can get uh, the wealthy to pay more. Um, and then there ends up being tensions uh, that rise. Um, a lot of times it could be because, um, you know, 
the wealthy have been able to um, get uh, uh, lawyers or to get lobbyists uh, to make favorable uh, legislation so that uh, they're able to keep keep more and that can happen for a decade or two and, and then tensions rise between the haves and have nots because you know it's it hasn't been fair over the last two years we have you know 10 years or 20 years where we haven't been playing uh, on a level playing field and so big big tensions rise and i think we can see something like that going on right now um in the u.s and probably around the world mm -hmm. um and so um you know, redistributing wealth is an important part or, or can be an, a part to a deleveraging um, strategy. Um, and then the other, which is the simplest, easiest, and uh, politicians probably favorite way is just to print more money, right? Quantitative easing or any type of just printing more of a currency, it just uh, devalues that currency. But it's easy for a government to do that um, if they if they have that capability, and you know it doesn't cost them much or anything. It's it's really the yeah. political expediency that makes that one so uh, favorable. Uh, but again, countries that can't print, you know, like Greece, right? You know. Yeah, and, and that and that's the difference really that that I was pointing to. There are there are these tools that can make it happen, but they take a long period of time. There's consequences when they're implemented. Um, but the idea that we can just put more money in the marketplace is is not available, you know, to to the average consumer. And um, ultimately, I I think it's one of the biggest pitfalls we've got. We you know, quantitative easing isn't a new process. Uh, a lot of people think that that was an invention of, of this the past Great Recession, but we did it after World War II, right? Um, we printed a lot more money. And we, uh, in doing so, suppressed interest rates so that interest rates were lower than the inflation rate. That creates a negative real return, right? Because you're guaranteeing somebody an interest rate of, call it 4%, and you know the inflation rate is, call it 6%, you know, a negative 2% uh, inflation rate over 10, 20, 30 years, and you've been able to, you know, inflate the debt away. Uh, so that's kind of what that means. And those are the mechanics of how that works. Uh, but when you see something like a negative interest rate policy, like we've seen in Japan and in Europe, where they are, the central banks are, it costs you money to, you know, to have a, a, a sovereign uh, instrument, like a sovereign bond, you just know that you're in some extreme event of, of an economic cycle, right? It, you're a good thing. You're going to make me pay you to hold my money. I mean, that's really screwed. And and so many people get affected so adversely from that, from pension funds and and everybody who needs a, a healthy financial system to be able to generate cash flows off financial assets. Right. That's an important concept. And if nobody can do that, uh, you know, the idea of, of pensions and retirement and all these types of things, you know, go away uh, because we're no longer able to generate cash flows off financial assets. And so, um, you know, those are some of the knock-on effects of a deleveraging process with the country, um, you know, printing more money and doing these crazy type things like negative interest uh, rate policies, you know, that's a problem. Well, I, 
I want to kind of tie that into, I mean, it seems like it starts off innocent at first, you know, with credit being introduced and then, hey, we could kind of expand our economy little by little. And then uh, people start to catch on. And that's how you have these bubbles and they end up popping a little bit slap on the wrist, it seems like. But over time, um, it just seems like the inevitable is going to happen as far as a fiat currency kind of crashing down. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that there's alternatives? Maybe, you know, a lot of people looking into cryptocurrency right now. Um, I'm just kind of curious on, on your take. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think cryptocurrency is the sole answer, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. I don't even think, um, you know, I'm not really even sure or I'm necessarily a proponent of the concept um, of Bitcoin becoming the, the world reserve currency or, or anything like that. But what's interesting is that Bitcoin does provide a check and balance to uh, central banks around the world who are taking on these adverse and, and uh, you know, pathological policies, right? Um, <clears throat> Bitcoin is, is kind of a check and balance to that. And so uh, that's where I think it can play an important role. I mean, ultimately, we're, there's going to be a day where we have to get back to sound money policy. Um, every uh, period of unsound money that's happened in the past, from Greece to Rome to uh, the Netherlands to the days of the Renaissance to, uh, to England, uh, have all had these periods where um, they started out with sound money, that their money was backed by you know, a commodity or a resource, there was scarcity. Uh, then somehow they, you know, started to say, okay, well, gold is hard to, you know, carry around. Let's, let's use this government money, these, these paper, let's use paper um, or, or some other, you know, instrument, uh, you know, and then they start to spend too much and they raise taxes as much as they can, but, but then they still don't have enough. And then they start to, uh, debase their currency. Now, in the Greek and Roman times, um, they weren't printing money or, or having quantitative easing, but they were changing the alloys, you know, where it used to be 98% gold or something like that. And at the mm -hmm. end of their um, reign or something, it ended up being, you know, 5% gold or 2% gold. You know, they were physically, literally, you know, debasing their, uh, their currency. So um, I think we have learned time and time again that when we come and start using unsound money policies, they always end in, in economic disaster. And we always have to go back to, to sound money to get everything running and started again. And I don't think this time will be any different. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's the ultimate lesson that we seem to keep missing. So then I, I, yeah, I guess- so do, do we eventually learn it? Is this eventually going to get learned? I, I think we won't have any other choice. Yeah, at some point, there's not going to be any other choice but to learn that. And that's going to be very painful. It's always a very painful restructuring process when trust and faith is completely lost from a reserve currency or from a sovereign currency. And so, so I feel like that, that begs well, then, the question, should, you know, should credit even play a role within you know, the base system of money at all? If, if this is what is the end result of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a question I, you know, I think credit can play a role if there is a constraint to it, right? If, uh, if you are under sound money policies, 
um, then your uh, currency is backed by something real and there's scarcity to it and you can only borrow so much and then at some point people don't want to give you any more loans because your assets aren't there and there's a natural curb or a natural constraint to how much you can borrow it's self-regulating it, it's self -regulating. it manages itself exactly um, when you remove those constraints when you say okay well the money isn't backed by anything anymore it's really just by our the full faith and you know trust of, of a country or, or whatnot um yeah you get into trouble because there's no real constraints and so they print more and more and there's no there's no immediate effect right we've seen a couple times now in recent history of uh you know two or three or four trillion dollar uh laws passed or enactment you know infrastructure bills or, or various bills and we don't immediately see a consequence of that and so we think oh okay it's okay it, you know it'll be fine um you'll get a stephanie kelton of the world with a, a completely new idea of modern monetary theory where we can print as much as we want there's absolutely no consequence of that and i think that goes for a little while because within economic systems the the check and balance or the, the the cause and effect are you know can be years or decades before they transpire and so uh, people are looking for a consequence from a an action it doesn't happen and so they think they can keep doing it but then those accrue and sometimes that someday sometime that that bill does come so yeah and you can keep kicking it down the road but and you can even change the way it looks though so you you talked about jake how um you know, money, uh, you know, Roman money use was primarily gold and then eventually primarily not gold. Well, one of the things I was thinking of when you said that, and it's directly relevant here, is if you think about what's happening with central bank digital currencies, they're going to look like crypto assets. They may even feel like crypto assets, but they're not. There's actually nothing mm -hmm. behind them. So if you look at Bitcoin, which actually has a finite amount, that's going to self-regulate simply by supply and demand over time. Um, one of the things that I think that we're in danger of is with these digital currencies coming out, they may look similar, but ultimately they don't really change the game at all. They just, you know, they kind of, it's, you know, don't look over here, look over here now. And then, you know, the same games can keep going, right? And maybe for it's another decade, but that bill's going to have to get paid eventually. I think, um, yeah. CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. We'll see. We'll see uh, where they go, and, and we'll talk probably in future episodes about them. But um, they can be extremely dangerous. Uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in, in future episodes. I probably jumped the gun on that, but I got excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, uh, James and Jake, thank you guys again for joining me uh, on this episode, and we'll see you in the future. Right. Thanks, Albert. Awesome. Thanks, Albert. Thanks for listening. If you learned something new, leave a review. We'd love to get feedback in order to make this show better for every listener. If you want to dive more into the subject we just spoke about in today's episode, click the link in the show notes to order crypto asset investing in the age of autonomy. As well, you can get to know Jake and James better by reading their bios in the show notes below. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you again next time on the Age of Autonomy podcast.